Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. It's the stock valuation special. Uh, two weeks ago, we said we'd do an episode on valuation methods if viewers were interested. And after leaving many enthusiastic comments, it looks like you were. So here it is. In this episode, Greg and I tackle one of the biggest questions of them all. What is a stock worth and how do you value it? Enjoy. Hello, I'm back and uh, welcome now what, to the to the 10th episode of What's Not Priced In. It's uh, It's flown by. So it's obviously the 10 episode anniversary and we have a 10th episode special for you guys planned. We floated the idea, I think two weeks ago, and you all kindly responded with enthusiastic comments. So today we're finally doing the, uh, the valuation episode. And today's topic is obviously not about interest rates. It's not about inflation. It's not about tech stocks. It's not about NVIDIA. It's not about AI. Today is all about the, um, the fundamental and perennial question how to value stocks, what are stocks worth, and obviously what better person to answer that question than co-host Greg Kahneman. Greg, G'day, welcome. Well, Maybe uh, uh, what more annoying person to answer that question because the answer is there's no, there's no right <laughs> okay. answer to okay. the, uh, the perennial question of how to value a stock. So we'll get into that. But yeah, um, that's the that's the short answer to a long presentation. Yeah, so basically that's that's the one takeaway. There is no <laughs> there is no one right way. But I think the way that you sort of do it is to focus primarily on return on equity, uh, which basically measures profitability. So I thought we'd uh yeah, start right away. Maybe maybe well, you can maybe explain how you got maybe how you used to value stocks before you stumbled upon this approach and uh why you sort of settled on on this approach. Yeah, uh it's a good place to start because I suppose everyone needs to, uh, and we've spoken about this before, everyone needs to find out what type of investor they mm -hmm. are in order to uh, have an approach that uh, works for them. Uh, so some people are, are traders, some people just trade the charts and that fits their personality. Uh, some people um, are more growth-oriented investors, they might like the tech stocks and mm -hmm. therefore they're still they're trading trends and momentum, but you know they're doing so in a, in a certain sector that they might understand. I have always been someone that has just, and, and like a lot of people, are attracted to the, the concepts of uh, value mm -hmm. investing. Uh, value investing, I think, and we'll get into this because the, the formula that I use isn't really a value investing formula. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a stock valuing formula. Yep. Um, it uh, it, it values growth stocks as well as um, mm -hmm. traditional value stocks. But essentially, like many people, I went on the path of, of uh, reading Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. reading Ben Graham's Security Analysis, Intelligent Investor. And when I was in my, I guess, 20s, I just read loads and loads of books uh, about investing and from investing uh, legends. And there was always different ways that you could go about it and your yep. beloved dividend um, investing model that we're going to look at as well uh, was a part of that Disc dis discounted cash flow. Uh, but, you know, there was always the question of how do you account for this or that, or, mm. you know, what discount rate to use? Like there's so many different inputs into or, or considerations when you're trying to value a stock um, that all the sort of approaches that I used were always, uh, difficult or, or, mm. or left me feeling a little bit, um, you know, there's got to be something more. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even sure when it was, but a number of years ago, I stumbled across a book uh, by Brian McNiven. And, Is it uh, this one? There you go. Yeah. Concise, concise Guide to Value Investing, How to Buy Wonderful Companies at a Fair Price. Where'd you dig that out from, by the way? Uh, I, I read your, well, Free plug. There's a Greg Kahneman also has a as a book on valuation, and I read that when I started here in this company. And you obviously mentioned the book in your in your book, and then I just bought it. And here's your book. There you can get it on Kindle. I'm not sure if yeah. And it's appropriately blurred, and no one yeah. no one saw that. So there you go. Um, 
but so that was the that was the first time I saw this valuation model that I thought, okay, well, this is this is quite interesting. So, um, and and then it went on from there. And then you sort of once you use a model and you sort of learn what goes into it, then you can because uh, a model is only as good as its inputs, right? And I can give you any valuation you want <laughs> by changing the inputs, and, yeah. I, and that's the the. Uh, the interesting thing with valuation models, you know, whenever you read in the in the paper or whatever someone values a stock at X, then they're not telling you what goes into mm-hmm. that valuation. Then you're left with a big question mark about uh, what that is. So maybe the best way to uh, explain this process is just to start off with a bit of a presentation I put together uh, for this episode. Um, so we'll start off with how to value stocks. There's no right way. Uh, there is no such thing as intrinsic value. Value is in the in the inputs. It's in the eye of the eye of the beholder. So yep. depending on those inputs, you can come up with any type of valuation. And you know, people would have probably heard this before. Uh, the valuation side of things is part science, part art. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about um, the science first. There are three key inputs into the valuation process that I use. And uh, the main one is the return on equity. The reason why this is very important and I think crucial is because the return on equity is effectively uh, a profitability measure. So profits and profitability are two different things. And return on equity measures how well a company uses its equity capital. Uh, as a share market investor or as an equity investor, that is your investment dollars. So the equity capital is what you're concerned about and a return on it, that equity capital is what you're concerned about. So uh, return on equity is a very important consideration uh, in, in a valuation model. The other thing that is uh, very very important is the required rate of return. Yep. Uh, and this is the discount rate. So uh, put simply, a discount rate needs to be uh, a risk-free rate plus what's called an equity risk mm-hmm. premium. So the discount rate traditionally is considered to be the 10-year government bond yield. Uh, and in Australia at the moment, that's about 4%. Mm-hmm. And an equity risk premium can be anywhere from, you know, three to five percent, and depending on uh, depending on the market's valuation and how the, um, investors are valuing things, there's an implied equity risk premium in the market. And at the moment, I think that implied risk equity risk premium is quite quite thin. And uh, we talked about that in last week's episode with Romano. He he made the comment that the equity yep. risk premium was pretty thin. And just to let you know, and we'll, we'll, I'll show you how this works in a minute, but I generally use for large cap stocks, I generally use a 8% discount rate. Mm-hmm. And when I'm looking at small caps, I might go to 10%. Uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't, if, if you've got a really risky stock and you're putting, say, 15% into the model, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you're getting compensated for that risk because the risky stock, it's not really about how much, uh, how high your discount rate is. And just to be clear, the higher the discount rate, the lower the valuation. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a really low discount rate, then you're going to get higher valuations out of it. So we'll go into that a little bit more. But just to finish off the the key inputs into valuation, the other third thing that I don't see being used in many uh, models is the Mm -hmm. dividend payout ratio. So essentially what this means is, if a company is paying out most of its profits in the form of a dividend, uh, you're not going to get much of a benefit of the compounding effect of reinvesting earnings. So most people are familiar with the compounding effect. Mm-hmm. That is, if you can reinvest money at a high rate of return, then that pile of money will grow relatively quickly. And that's the whole concept behind growth stocks. If growth mm-hmm. stocks are reinvesting all their earnings back into the business and generating a high rate of return on those reinvested earnings, then that stock is going to get a much bigger premium than a stock that is distributing all of its earnings via a dividend. So that's why the dividend payout ratio is quite important. 
So putting it together, the basic equation, and this is not including the dividend payout ratio. So this is just a really basic way of looking at two of the inputs. So you've got a, a return on equity and you divide that by your required rate of return. Mm -hmm. um, so just for ease of uh, example here, let's say you've got a company that has a generating 20% return on equity. Uh, it's got your, your required rate of return is 10%. You effectively just divide the 20% by yep. the 10% and you get two. And what that means is you wouldn't pay more than two times the equity value, which is the book value of the business to get your required return of 10%. Um, so as I said, basic example, uh, does that make sense, Kirill? How, how does that sounding so far? No, it, sound, it sounds uh, very good. And I think you've sort of mentioned that in, say, if people want more context, you go through the those examples in your book as well and you sort of start off quite basic and then add on the complexity. So if anyone wants to get more info, you can just check out your book as well. But yeah, so far, so good. Okay, cool. So um, we'll go now to the full formula. Uh, so this is... Um, takes into account reinvested earnings. And it's, uh, as we pointed out at the start from Brian McNiven's concise guide to value investing, how to buy wonderful companies at a fair price. Um, and if people want to jot this down uh, or just uh, keep this in mind, it's a, it's a bit of a formula, but it's pretty straightforward. It's effectively the return on equity divided by the required rate of return. But then what you need to do is, is break that return on mm -hmm. equity up depending on what portion of it is reinvested into the business and what portion of it is paid out as a dividend. So this is the way that the model accounts for growth or accounts yep. for companies that reinvest profits back into the business. So that very basic example I gave you of 20 divided by 10, that's effectively assuming there's no reinvested capital mm -hmm. and it all goes out as a, as a dividend. So in uh, uh, in real terms, that means the balance sheet of the company or the the, the equity value of the company is not expanding. Mm -hmm. Whereas this part of the the full equation takes into account the reinvested uh, earnings. So it's essentially return on equity divided by the required rate of return, and you multiply that by the reinvested return on equity, and then you add the part of the return on equity that's paid as a dividend. So in the um, in the example I gave above of 20%, mm -hmm. let's say there's a 50% dividend payout ratio, then you would multiply the first bit by 0.1 and then you would add 0.1 um, on the second bit, i.e. 10% yep. uh, in, in both, both parts. Then what you get as the answer is a multiple of equity. Uh, so let's say, for example, um, just go back to the other one. You've got two times uh, two times book value is the the estimate of value of the company. Then you would just get the mm -hmm. book value per share of the company, multiply that by two, and there is your valuation. Um, so maybe that's all sort of you know conceptual. So let's do mm -hmm. a real example. Uh, we've got Commonwealth Bank. Uh, these are estimates that are taken from uh, consensus estimates that are mm -hmm. using uh, the current financial year. We've only just gone into it. So they're sort of forward-looking estimates, but essentially this is what the market is starting to look at now. FY23 is behind us. Um, so you really need to look at forward estimates. Yep. And for those who are uh, wondering you know, what sources you can get that from, I think if you did Google searches, you'd probably be able to find uh, forward estimates, you know, f on a free basis. But uh, because I do this obviously all day, every day, uh, I use a uh, service called Market Scanner, and it's a global uh, stock, I guess, uh, data um, hmm. service. That it's not out of it's not um, hugely expensive. I think it might be fifty or sixty bucks a month. Yep. to use and you can put in uh, any stock code from around the world and it gives you the financials, it gives you where there are analyst consensus estimates, it'll give you the next two uh, to three years of consensus estimates. So you can do um, 
estimates of value based on FY24, FY25, that sort of stuff. So um, that's what I use. It's uh, called marketscanner.com. Feel free to have a have a squiz. Uh, for Commonwealth Bank, the return on equity forecasts uh, for this financial year is 13.4%. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, I generally use an 8% discount rate. Uh, Commonwealth pays uh, a lot of its profits out as a divvy. It pays 75% profits out as a divvy, and that means it reinvests 25%. And it's got a book value per share of $44.70. So let's see what that looks like when we put it into the model. So you've got 13.4% as the return on equity. 8% is your discount rate or required rate of return. And maybe just before I go on, I probably should point out what is a required rate of return. Let's assume the stock market doesn't exist. The stock market's closed Mm -hmm. and you're just investing in a business. And that business is Commonwealth Bank. And you say, all right, I want an 8% return from this business. Now, I don't care whether the return is given to me in the form of reinvested profits or in the form Mm -hmm. of a dividend. Just add those two up and I want 8%. What price do I need to pay? So you're sort of, when you're talking about 8% required rate of return, you're talking from a business owner's perspective. What rate of return do I want? And then the stock market is another thing and I explained that all in the book um, hopefully quite clearly um, but that's where that's what the discount rate or the required rate of return is all about uh, so 3.35 percent is 25 percent of the return on equity and that's the reinvested amount so we're multiplying that uh, first bit by the reinvested amount then we're adding 75 percent of the return on equity which is 10.5 percent then you divide that by your required rate of return and your answer is 1.96 times book value. So if we multiply 1.96 times by the book value, which is 44.70, you get $87.61. Now the current price of uh, Commonwealth Bank is $104. So when I look at that and I can put in a different discount rate just to see what the the number mm-hmm. would be and my estimate is that the market is implicitly pricing CBA on a required rate of return of around 7%. So what does that mean? That means if you buy Commonwealth Bank for $104 and Commonwealth Bank hits those consensus estimates, mm-hmm. i.e. it generates uh, a return of 13.4%, then you're essentially going to get a 7% return, which will be mostly in the form of a dividend and slightly in the form of reinvested earnings. Um, That might be fine for some. That might be fine for superannuation funds. Commonwealth Mm -hmm. Bank is a pretty solid, solid company. Uh, But in my estimates where I I want a minimum of 8%, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be buying Commonwealth Bank unless it got below $87. Um, so that's just a very, as I said, this is not, we're not talking about the art of thinking about all the other things that go into, uh, consideration when you're looking at, looking at stocks, this is purely the the science of of valuation. So, um, do you want to move on to Telstra now, or did you want to chat about that in any, any way? Well, I was, um, uh, because Greg sort of has maybe a, a few gripes with the dividend discount model, I said that I'd also try to do some valuations using using the dividend discount model, and then maybe surprise you on the podcast just to see if our valuations using the same discount rate come close together. Let's hear it. And okay, well, <clears throat> drum roll: the value that I got for Commonwealth Bank using the um, the dividend discount model was ninety three dollars a share which was very close to your one of pretty much 88 dollars a share so interesting very close and so maybe it's not as bad a model as you as you think no no not at all i guess you know that that sort of works with dividend payers right like it's yeah yeah if you've got a stock that's paying somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of its profits out as a divvy that's a dividend payer um, yeah. So I guess that that model would work for it. The the question I have, I'm not sure if you've got the the back the the data for this, but how does that how does that factor in uh, 
the, the growth of the reinvested earnings or is there an assumed growth rate that you put into that model? Yeah, so I think the very simplistic way that um, people can use this model particularly is usually the Gordon growth model, which is basically you get the forward dividends per share and you divide that by the product of the discount rate minus the stable growth rate. Uh, but there is more of a complicated way to get that stable growth rate, which actually uses return on equity uh, and which is also uh, uses the reinvested growth rate. So usually, so when I got the 93 per share, I uh, used Commonwealth Bank's estimated return on equity for full year 24. And I times that by the uh, the payout ratio. So basically I just pretty much did what you sort of did there. And that gives me the, um, the implied growth rate of its uh, stable earnings that's sort of reinvested. And then I plug that in that's and I get that. Yeah. So that model well, was actually, that growth rate, by the way, it was, let me just get my notes out. So bear with me, got my notes here. Yep. So just maybe for anyone interested. So if you want to use return on equity to find the growth rate using the dividend discount model, it's basically one minus the payer ratio, and then you times that by the estimated return on equity, which is similar to what you sort of do there. So the full year 24 uh, payout ratio for Commonwealth Bank was, like you said, about 75%. The return on equity estimated was at 13.4. So you times the payout ratio and you times the return on equity and you get a growth rate of 3.35%. And I think that's actually a, right there in the formula as well for you too. 3.35, fair enough. Yep. Uh, look, I mean, it's, it's interesting that they come out uh, very similarly. I guess the, the thing that moves the value around the most is the return on equity estimate, right? So yep. if, if, I, if I look at FY25 and, and I think the, the market's going to price uh, or, or um, our ROE is going to expand again, then you'd sort of think, okay, well, maybe maybe the market's looking through uh, a week 2024 and mm -hmm. it's prepared to, to, to pay more for it because profits are going to rebound again in FY25. So what we're looking at really when we're valuing like this is just a snapshot yep. of uh, really where the stock is where the stock is in the short term. Yep. So I'll, I'll often do a valuation for FY24, FY25, yep. uh, to get a sense of whether intrinsic value uh, is is expanding, is falling, uh, and that gives you a better sense of, of where the market might be might be positioning. But as I said, this is more of a the science behind the valuation. So it's just to give you an idea of how this how this model works. Yeah. And I think uh, the the most important thing I think with stock valuation, it really is probably leans more towards the art rather than the science because anyone can use this formula or the dividend growth, uh, discount formula, but it's the inputs that really make all the difference because um, all of these models are highly sensitive to the inputs. If, the, if you have garbage assumptions, you're going to get garbage results. So really where all of the um, insight comes from and where the the top players make the big bucks is by having accurate assumptions that go into the model absolutely and we'll talk a little bit about the um the the, the art side of things yep. uh, at, at the end but let's uh continue because we're going to do something uh similar with telstra um yep. telstra has got a very high dividend payout <laughs> yep. ratio it always has really it's a it's a it's a dividend paying stock it's got a pretty good return on equity, um, 15.3%. I didn't so I guess another thing to consider here is the return on equity is essentially your net profit uh, divided by the equity base of the company. But sometimes net profit is different than free cash flow. And, and I consider free cash flow to be the more important uh, number to use. So there are some companies... And, and Transurban uh, come, sticks out at me as, a, as an obvious one. Yep. There are some companies where the accounting profit is quite low, mm -hmm. but the free cash flow that they generate is a lot higher. So you need to, 
when you look at some companies and you think, uh, what, why, why does that look so expensive? It's because the free cash flows are a lot higher than the accounting profit. Mm-hmm. And it's generally in your um, infrastructure type businesses that that happens. So where they do tel- depreciation expense is really high. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, and th- I found a, a company called Chorus, which is a New Zealand uh, broadband um, provider. And I valued it based on its free cash flow and is considerably cheaper than what the valuation mm-hmm. was just based on its net profit. So there are some companies where the market just doesn't value uh, net profit in the accounting sense, but looks at the free cash flows because the free cash flow is essentially what is left over mm-hmm. after sustainable investment needs and therefore what is left over for payout as a dividend, uh, reinvestment for growth opportunities, maybe buy back stock. That's the important number to look at. And there are limited uh, companies where the free cash flow number is far more important than the accounting number. Telstra is one of those. There's not a huge difference between the free cash flow number and the accounting number, but I have used free cash flow here to get 15.3%, still using the required rate of return Mm -hmm. of 8%. And as I said, it's got a big divvy payout ratio uh, of 95% and a book value of $1.40 per mm-hmm. share. So when we do the numbers there, again, I uh, won't go through all this, but it's pretty um, straightforward. There's your 5% of the 15.3%, and that's your 95% of the 15.3%. So the my estimate of value using those inputs says um, you wouldn't pay any more than two times book mm-hmm. value for Telstra if you wanted to get that 8% return from the business. Now, two times 140 is 280, yet you've got a current price of 425. Now, uh, I recommended Telstra a couple of years ago uh, around the sort of, um, around this 280 level, might've been a bit higher around three, can't recall Mm -hmm. exactly, because it was back in, might've been back in 2018. And a recently recommended client sell this at around 420 and we took about 50% profit mm-hmm. on it. But when I did the valuation on this and, and you know, the stock had rallied, it had done really well mm-hmm. uh, given that we'd had a pretty rough market last year and, and it sort of recovered, the market's obviously recovered, but Telstra has done really well. And I thought, you know, it's just, it's getting to a price where the implied return you're getting from that business is is just not, all mm-hmm. that good and there's better opportunities elsewhere. So I recommend clients sell it. Um, of course, after that recommendation, I think it went up to 435, maybe even a little bit higher, uh, but it's since started to come mm-hmm. back down a little bit. And, I, and, you know, in my view, unless Telstra can start to really generate a higher return on equity uh, and, and generate excess free cash flow, uh, I think it's pretty stretched around this level. Now, the reason why people are liking it in this market is because, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's almost a monopoly provider of uh, mobile phone services. It's got the best mobile phone network in Australia. Um, it's a, a good play on the inflation theme. It's got pricing mm-hmm. power. Uh, so the, the, the market really, really likes it. And as a defensive company, it's, it's very popular. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it was time to take profits. Whenever anything gets really popular and the valuation is just not there, uh, you know, I get a little bit worried. So based on this, uh, formula, mm-hmm. uh, you can work out and say the market is implicitly pricing Telstra on a required rate of return of around 5.5%. Now, that seems very low. Well, especially when you can get <laughs> yeah nearly 5% in term deposits these days, right? Yep. Which is risk-free. So to me, that's just not a good risk-reward trade-off. Uh, and that's all you're trying to look for when you're valuing stocks. You're saying, okay, what's the What's the risk? What's the reward? And if that's not a good uh, equation, if it's not a good trade-off, you don't need to you don't need to be involved. And I think that's why you were mentioning at the last week's episode about how the equity risk premium is so so thin, especially if you look at Telstra's risk equity premium, it's it's tiny. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you're essentially getting what one and a half percent above <laughs> the. 10-year government bond yield mm. to invest in. Yes, it's a it's a solid business, uh, but it's still a business that's impacted by uh, risks to the economy, yep. uh, business risk, management risk, all that sort of stuff, regulatory risks. 
and is one and a half percent enough of compensation for that? Uh, you know, the simple answer is no, it's not. Yeah. But right now, because the market is what it is, and these things change all the time, like a few years ago, there was plenty of of uh, risk priced mm. in to Telstra share price, but now uh, it's certainly not. So these are the sort of things you probably consider on the the art side of things, but it, it is a pretty clear cut case of uh, being pretty overvalued. I'd say. Yeah. Well, I think if if you wanted to know what the dividend discount model was saying, it was two fifty a share, which was pretty much bang on to what your model is saying too. So <laughs> even even harsher than the yeah. uh, than my model. Yep. I guess that's maybe got something to do with a, a lower implied growth rate, perhaps or. Yeah, I think with if it's, uh, I think especially with Telstra, the implied growth rate is, has has to be a bit lower. But I think also uh, the I think the the great thing with your formula and maybe something like the golden growth formula is you don't necessarily have to use it to come up with your own valuation. You can literally just um, use it to figure out what the market is implying. Yeah, and I think that's sort of uh, this type of stuff that is maybe written in people like expectations invest in that book that sort of says you can use these discounted valuation models or the return and equity model to just figure out what the market is betting on. And then you can just work backwards and go, well, is that really achievable? Is that a reasonable thing? And then you can go from there. So I think if I plug in the, for example, with Telstra, if I use the Gordon uh, growth model, I sort of and uh, solve for the market's implied growth rate. It's it's very unreasonable, especially given that the Reserve Bank thinks that in June quarter 2025 GTP growth is going to be two percent, and Telstra's implied market growth rate is over three percent. So it's it's useful in that sense as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I guess you think about it is that when you're investing in stocks and you're projecting some sort of future yeah. outcome it's all about probabilities right no one's got any idea of what the next six to 12 months two years is going to bring and all you're trying to do is put the probability on your side so when you when you do that and you look at a stock and you say well the the implicit pricing on telstra is a return of 5.5 percent mm -hmm. i don't know what the future is going to bring but i don't like the sound of that so yeah. i just i'm just you know I'm going to take myself away from low probability situations mm -hmm. and try to find higher probability situations. And that's really all you're trying to do with these, these valuation attempts. You're looking for good value and you're asking yourself, is this a, a good probability bet mm -hmm. uh, over the next six to 12 months? Um, and when I say six to 12 months, there's a, probably a deliberate reason for that because the market in general is very short-sighted. Mm -hmm. So most, if, if you look at, you know, traditional valuation theory, uh, a stock's market value is, the, is, is a reflection of its cash flows for years into the future. But what the market does is really gets, and especially when the market's bearish, the market mm -hmm. gets very short-sighted and will price in the next 12 months and not really worry too much about the next two, three, four years. So that's why in bear markets, you can pick up things mm -hmm. at such good prices because the market has just become so short term in its, in its look, in its looking at profitability. So it mm -hmm. might say, okay, um, return on equities fallen to 8%, even though that's based on a cyclical low, if you can buy that 8%, mm -hmm. knowing that when the cycle turns, it'll, it'll go back to 10, 12, 14%, you're getting a very good price. The, the price you're paying for that, though, is just to sit there and wait yep. while the market has its panic about are things going to get worse and maybe they will get worse. Um, but you can sort of arbitrage that demand by the market that it's looking very short term and say, mm -hmm. well, I'm looking longer term, so therefore I'll, I'll, just, I'll just wait this out. But it's very hard to do because a lot of people are concerned about buying things that might go down more. Um, yep. We don't know the future, so we don't know whether earnings are going to get worse before they get better. Uh, so there are little, you know, a lot of things that um, people have to consider. But it's one of the the interesting things from my perspective that you know that's what you want to do. You want to sort of arbitrage that time difference mm -hmm. where people are 
more focused on the short term and not necessarily focused on on the longer term. Yep. All right, so uh, let's go to a stock where the valuation doesn't work so well. Yep. Um, it's a big stock. It's uh, Apple. And I've written here, beware of big numbers because the way that uh, this model treats compounding when you put really big numbers into it, yep. it just creates crazy valuations. And so, for example, right, if we look at Apple uh, for FY24, uh, Apple has a return on equity of 157%. It's like a massive, <laughs> hugely profitable business. Yep. Um, and there are reasons for that, which we'll, which we'll show you in a minute. Mm -hmm. But if I put that into the model and it's got a dividend payout ratio of only 15%, so it's reinvesting 85% of its profits back into the business and then the model's saying, oh, okay, well, it's going to then generate 157% return <laughs> yep. on those reinvested profits and it's going to keep doing yep. that it's going to spit out a crazy number because you know the the way compounding works the mm -hmm. higher the numbers get the more crazy yep. your number gets so let's have a look at how crazy this would get uh, so just to round off there it's got a book value per share of $4.70 US so if we use um, consensus estimates for 24 the uh, estimate of value is 330 times book value, <laughs> um, which gives you a share price of 1,552 US dollars. Now, the current price is $193. So clearly, uh, that's an absurd. That's a bargain. Valuation. Well, yeah, I mean, Apple's just cheap, right? Which you, there is an argument that it is cheap, yeah, by the yeah. way. Um, yeah. But I will. We'll, we'll dig into that in a, in a little bit. But it just goes to show you that the idea behind this model is you want to try and use sensible numbers because the other aspect of markets and of capitalism is that when you have really high numbers, a competitor will see it and compete those numbers away. Yep. Now, whether that's going to happen for global tech companies that have found themselves with monopoly networks and mm. Uh, you know, massive global brands is an, is another question, which is why, and we talked about this on our very first episode, that you know some of these stocks aren't necessarily as overvalued as what the market thinks because they are hugely profitable. Yep. They've got cash piles. They're you know just generating extreme, extraordinary profitability. Yep. So putting these numbers into this model just doesn't work. So let's have a look at a different way to do it. So what I did is I assumed a, uh, I, I guess a, a more reasonable seventy percent return on equity, mm -hmm. which is around what Apple was doing back in twenty twenty, uh, and I've assumed a just a dividend payout ratio of fifty percent. So I, I don't want the model to go crazy on mm -hmm. the on the compounding effect. So, and I just sort of guessed at these numbers, and I just because what I do a lot of times with stocks that are reinvesting momentarily they're reinvesting mm -hmm. all their profits in growth i just assume a 50 percent yep. dividend payout ratio because what you've got to understand is when you put numbers into a model that model just extrapolates that situation out so if you're assuming 15 percent uh, uh dividend payout ratio that's assuming that year after yep. year after year and and sometimes that's not a reasonable assumption especially with some companies especially in Australia mm -hmm. they might be reinvesting profits for the next couple of years mm -hmm. and then they might get to a level of greater maturity and then they might change that and pay out so i always go conservative mm -hmm. and go for a say a 50-50 dividend payout ratio because it just makes the valuation more conservative and and make sure that i'm not paying too much for a for a stock so when we do that with apple we get a book um, uh, estimate of value of 42.65 times book and book value is $4.70, mm -hmm. which gets us to $200 a share. So you can, you can pretty much say the market is pricing in for Apple a, return, a, a sustainable long-term return yep. on equity of around 70%. Um, now, I don't know enough about the company to know whether that's a fair assumption but what I do know is that you can dig down into this return on equity mm -hmm. 
by using something called the DuPont model. Yep. Um, and this is really interesting because if you if you're looking at stocks and they've got a really good ROE, or even if they don't, mm-hmm. but you want to know, you know, how do, how does that company generate that return yep. on equity? Is it generated because they have a great brand? Is it generated because they've got, um, uh, you know, a, a low capital base? Um, and you know, you can you can break it down to give you the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of what that ROE is made up of. And um, so the Dupont model. Uh, allows you to do that and what what it does is you you need to get the net profit margin you multiply the net profit margin by asset turnover and you multiply the asset turnover by the equity multiplier and that gives you the return on equity so what we're trying to do here is to look at um, how profitable is the business what what is the margin that the Mm -hmm. business is generating uh on 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 their revenues um so just for example if you're looking at, say, a food company like a Coles or a Woolies, mm-hmm. you're going to get really low um, profit margins, but they're just churning yeah. churning their stuff over, over and over. So they're getting volume on a low profit margin. Whereas Apple is probably a high profit margin business, yep. um, still churning its assets over, but it's but it's earning a big, big chunk of uh, profit on, on revenue. And then the the equity multiplier is really just a financial engineering thing. It's telling you how leveraged is the balance sheet mm-hmm. and how much is that of that leverage is producing the return on equity. Yep. So what it, what this uh, DuPont model tries to do is says what, what, what portion of it is, is relating to the business and how mm-hmm. the business is performing and what portion is relating to uh, the financial engineering, the business that, that produces a, a return on equity. Yeah. And I so think in your, book, sorry, I think in your book, you were saying that uh, a high return on equity isn't necessarily always a great thing because uh, companies can juice that number up with high debt levels. So and I think DuPont is, is a great way to sort of break down the true sources of that high return on equity. Exactly. Yep. yep. Exactly right. So let's break it down and see what we get for Apple. Um, so the net profit margin is 24.5%. Which you know it's not amazing, yeah. but it's pretty yeah. good. Um, the asset turnover uh, is one point one seven times. Uh, again, um, it's 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 good, but it's not not necessarily amazing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's probably reflective of the business. And what you want to do here as well is is compare this to companies within the same yeah. uh, same sector, because each company is going to have different characteristics depending on what type of business it's in. So the the real value from this comes from comparing different companies and seeing mm-hmm. how they they match up. So the equity multiplier this is the the really interesting thing for Apple because Apple doesn't necessarily have a lot of debt, but its assets it has three hundred and fifty one uh, billion in assets and it only has sixty three point mm-hmm. nine billion of equity, which means its equity multiplier is 5.49 times. Now that's pretty high. Um, It implies that, well, essentially you've got, there's a lot of liabilities on on the balance sheet Mm -hmm. and the difference between assets and equity is liabilities. So uh, it is a highly geared balance sheet. Um, So when you multiply all those together, you can see here, we're looking at the net profit Mm -hmm. margin, multiplied by asset turnover, multiplied by the equity multiplier, mm-hmm. and that's where you get your 157% from. So what I did, I thought, okay, well, that's pretty high. The equity multiplier is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what Microsoft uh, has as an equity multiplier. And it's only 1.89 times. Now, mm-hmm. Microsoft's return on equity from memory is about 30 35%. So it's a lot lower than uh, than than Apple's, but I thought if we if we do this uh, formula and substitute Microsoft's equity uh, multiplier, which is a it's a far more conservative mm-hmm. balance sheet, you come up with a ROE of fifty four percent. Yep. Now I didn't do a valuation based on an ROE of fifty four percent, but if I did. The valuation would be lower than the current share price, so you'd probably look at it and say, "Okay, well, the current share price, uh, you know, it's not 
not, not outrageously mm-hmm. overvalued. I wouldn't say it's undervalued. Um, but, and there's a little bit of risk in there because the balance sheet yeah. is relatively geared. So if, for example, I don't know, there was a flop in terms of one of the iPhone releases or a competitor came up with some better stuff and, and Apple started to struggle from a um, revenue and, and profit perspective, mm-hmm. then the leverage in that balance sheet would have quite an impact. Yep. Whereas you don't have that with Microsoft. And I think I did the same for NVIDIA and NVIDIA was only had a equity multiplier of 1.6 mm-hmm. times as well. So um, yeah, you would say that Apple, and, and this is this surprised me as well, which yeah. is why the DuPont uh, method is really interesting yep. because I didn't... Th- my view was that Apple had a pretty solid balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And I guess in many ways it does, but it's also gotten rid of a lot of its cash probably through buybacks. I don't follow mm-hmm. the company closely, but I'd say it's buying back a lot of its stock. And that means that it's it's leveraging itself because it's returning mm-hmm. its excess cash to shareholders while maintaining liabilities that uh, fund it through other other means. And, and that's where you get this higher equity multiplier. So... Yeah. yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's very surprising. I think that sort of shows the beauty of the Dupont analysis breakdown. Uh, it's sort of a little bit involved, but it, it definitely yields insights that are far more, far, far deeper than the superficial stuff you can read on on the news. Yeah, hundred percent. And I don't I don't do this with every single stock, yeah. but I think sometimes when there's when there's outliers, and especially when there's um when there's high return on equity stocks, I'll just have a squiz and just see whether there's anything. Um, that you need to be concerned about because often, like I invested in this company, recommended this company uh, to uh, subscribers. It's probably last year or the year before. I can't remember. It was called Cymec, and it was a um, a contractor, and it screened quite cheaply. Mm-hmm. Uh, the model showed it was it was pretty cheap, um, but when you did the Dupont model, it had quite a high equity multiplier. Mm-hmm. And even though it was cheap and even though it looked really good from a valuation perspective, the market just didn't really want to touch it because mm-hmm. of the the inherent leverage. And it wasn't necessarily high debt. So even if you looked at uh, net debt to equity ratios, it didn't necessarily show up. Um, mm-hmm. The way that contractors uh, are structured, they have a lot of liabilities mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily debt. Yep. So this is a really good way of highlighting this inherent leverage that's in a balance sheet and often you can have a really cheap stock but the market will just say well I'm not going to I'm not going to price that at a level that you would think is reasonable mm-hmm. purely because there's too much risk in the balance sheet and and if business turns south then the the equity value of that business is is going to or sorry the market cap value of that business is going to be hit because of the inherent leverage, so yeah, that's yeah. why it's um that's why it's really interesting. And if you want to find this stuff out, you just just type in Dupont ROE, yep. and plenty of articles come up that you know you can get all the the formulas from. Essentially, it's only three different formulas. Again, Market Screen has got all the data in there. Took me you know not very long to 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 grab that out of that that system. So um, yeah, you know, beats trawling through uh, annual reports to find it all. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think now is the, the 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 way to sort of round up the whole discussion, and maybe find ways where the the model maybe has some shortcomings or some disadvantages, and basically just reiterate the point that valuation is really more art than science. It's how you wield the tools, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and this is this is the really hard part because if you yeah. just value stocks and then go, oh, I found a cheap stock, I'm going to buy it. Uh, yeah, you might get lucky. It might work sometimes, uh, but it's not a it's not a consistent process that's going to deliver you good good returns. So, and and essentially, what you're doing with that valuation model, you're relying on consensus estimates, right? So, one of my first uh, considerations or things that I, I need to understand is that those consensus estimates are probably going to be wrong, mm-hmm. and yep. the way that analysts work they're just you know they're just doing a job they're just they're they're plugging the numbers into their model uh but it's not with it's not good for anyone's career to be an outlier when you're a when you're an analyst you're not going to say i think this company 
um, or I think the economy is going to turn down, therefore I'm going to price mm-hmm. in a, a lower, um, a much lower uh, yeah. estimate of, of earnings. Sometimes you get that. Like, for example, um, post-COVID, you've seen a lot of companies that have done really well during mm-hmm. COVID and, and analysts will price in a more of a normalization of their mm-hmm. uh, of their earnings post-COVID, which that makes sense, right? Yeah. But essentially, I always say, okay, well, they're probably going to be wrong. So what do I want to do? I want to look for companies that where the earnings have gone through a downgrade cycle. Mm-hmm. And there's two reasons for that. One, because you're not valuing a company based on, uh, let's say, top of the cycle earnings. You're not valuing a company based on um, too much optimism where a company might have done well for a couple of years and analysts are just like, this company's great. Mm-hmm. It's just going to keep doing this year after year. Uh, so I often look for companies that have, might have gone through a cyclical downturn. Uh, the, the analysts have downgraded mm-hmm. the, the earnings. And once that happens, the analysts get burnt, companies get burnt. No one really likes the stock yeah. anymore because it's had earnings downgrade. No one wants to invest in a stock that's had earnings downgrades. But I think that's when you can at least have a little bit more confidence that those mm-hmm. numbers are very conservative because yeah. it's gone through the downgrade cycle. Uh, it, could it get worse? Maybe. Um, but you know, you, you're you're buying essentially with a bit of a margin of safety. You're not mm-hmm. buying top of the cycle earnings. And then to give me a sense of whether things could get worse, that's when I look at the charts. So yeah. you know, the charts will tell me if there is more bad news. Not all the time, but, you know, often the charts will say, look, you know, just don't go near this. It mm-hmm. hasn't it hasn't finished its downgrade cycle. Whereas if there is still a lot of negative sentiment around a stock, if things are getting downgraded but the chart's looking better, then you think, okay, well, maybe the worst is over. Mm-hmm. Maybe everyone who wanted to sell is out and now mm-hmm. the value guys are coming in. And that was what happened with uh, James Hardy yeah. when I recommended that at the start of the year. It had gone through, I think it was three profit warnings. And I think on the third profit warning, the share price actually went up. And I thought, okay, well, it's nearly all the bad news is yep. priced in. If the if the share price has started to rally on bad news, mm-hmm. uh, then that's a good sign. So there are the sort of things that you, that you try to think about and you try to look for. Um, and the other thing is I just don't invest in yep. what I don't understand. Um, so a good example is uh, Zero. Uh, the yep. accounting cloud software company. Um, I, I tried to have a crack at it in, uh, I think it was in March, uh, when there was a bit of a broad sell-off in global markets after the Silicon Valley Bank tanked. And I noticed that all the tech stocks actually didn't really budge from mm. that. And and Zero was one that was looking quite strong on the charts. And I wrote a report and said, maybe this is the low for tech. And I've never been a good tech investor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely terrible because I can't value yeah. tech stocks because they've got yeah. earnings all the way out here. They don't even really have proper return yeah. on equities that you can put into the model. So I've got no basis for, for having a, a hand on heart way yeah. to say this is this is worth investing in. So I, I, I put it out there and said, look, you know, let's keep an eye on the chart. We might invest in this. We might not. Um, and sure enough, the share price spiked up. And I just stood there thinking, I don't really know what to do here because yeah. the chart looks really good, but valuation-wise, I got nothing. I'm not. I'm not going to know when to sell. Yeah. I'm not going to know when to take profits or whether to stick with it. So I just left it. And of course, I think it's gone up from 90 to 120 in the last few months. But it doesn't really bother me because I didn't yeah. didn't understand it in the first place. And I think one of the key things is just don't invest in what you don't understand because. Um, once you're in a stock that you don't understand, you're not you're not really going to know what you're doing with it. Um, and you, if it goes south, you might hang on in hope. Yeah. Um, or if it goes up, you might take profits too early. Mm-hmm. It's just there's plenty of other options out there where you do understand. So I'd say just stick to stick to that. Uh, and just lastly, um, I would say that the key thing is just to understand the limitation of any model. Mm-hmm. So yep. when you put a number into it, um, that can change all the time. And I always mm-hmm. go back into 
market screener and look and see whether yeah. the, the forward forecasts have been changed and whether the numbers that I've uh, based my valuation on are valid mm-hmm. or whether they're not, um, whether the cash flows of a company are, are markedly different from its, sorry, it's free, mm-hmm. whether the free cash flows yeah. are markedly different from the accounting cash flows. Um, you know, there's always, there's always things that you can look at mm-hmm. and a, a model is only a model. It's just giving you a, a general yeah. sense of, uh, of where things are, which is going back to the charts is why I always like to combine that fundamental valuation with the charts because the charts are effectively telling me what the psychology behind the stock is. Mm. Um, so if you can match those two things up, you don't necessarily need to be 100% on the valuation. If yep. the charts are giving you confidence, you can be 80% on the valuation. And you say, well, that's, again, going back to probabilities. Am I putting yep. the odds on my side? Tick, tick a box. Yeah, I've got reasonably good odds here. If I'm wrong, I'm not going to be blown up. If I'm mm-hmm. right, you know, there's probably a good good amount of upside. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really just sort of saying to yourself, okay, this is a model only. It's giving me a guide. It's trying mm-hmm. to put... Um, some probability on my side, but it's never going to be 100% certain. And certainly if a company comes out with a profit warning, it's going to blow that model yep. up anyway and you yep. have to put some numbers in and then be shocked at the change because they can can change quite vastly from <laughs> especially, you know, smaller stocks. And I've never been a, a great small cap investor, which is why I focus on the, the large yep. caps. Um, so, yeah, that's I think that's uh, that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, that was very comprehensive. I certainly enjoyed it. I think hopefully everyone else enjoys it. I think um, some takeaways that I took from it is obviously the model is only as good as its assumptions. So that's the art part of it. The science is the model, but the uh, the the art is the assumptions. Also, you don't really have to swing at every idea. I think that's the the Buffett quote. Just uh, pick your spots, um, and that's why you know with zero, you it could have been a good idea, but you didn't really have to swing it. There'll be other opportunities. Uh, and I think that was another one, but I already forgot it. <laughs> and well, just on that point, I, yep. um, I was just finishing up a, a report for, for Marie, my readers today. And I was listening to a podcast on the weekend and um, uh, the guest was Peter Atwater, which is a, mm-hmm. beha- he's a behavioral economist. And uh, it was just quite timely because I was, I was thinking, okay, what, what, what am I going to, tell my subscribers this month, mm-hmm. you know, and normally I recommend a stock a month and, you know, you do your research and you come out with an idea, but the market's just been running for the past month, right? Mm-hmm. Like just about everything has gone up. And if it hasn't gone up, then maybe you don't really want to be touching it. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I, I don't think you have to do anything. You don't, just don't have to do anything this yeah. month. And, and I wanted to write a, an article about here's some ideas that I've got, mm-hmm. but let's just, sit back you don't have to take them now let's sit back and, and wait and see how mm. things play out in the next uh couple of months because one of the things we talk about here a lot is sentiment right the cnn fear and greed index is still still well i think it's been nearly the the length of the 10 episodes yeah. it's still on extreme <laughs> greed which is crazy and and uh just general retail investor sentiment indicators are now at the highest level they've been since april 2021 so Mm. we're getting to these sentiment extremes even though the fundamentals are not really improving so um anyway so so peter atwater this behavioral economist made a comment right at the end of it where the the host asked him what would be your advice to people and he he just said you don't need to do anything you know you, you don't have to act there are times where you can just sit back and observe and i think that's a really important thing that just because a model tells you to buy or just mm. because it feels like everyone else is buying and stocks are going up, do I need to jump in there and do that? Yep. You don't. And I think once people become a little bit more comfortable with the process that they're following, who they are as yep. an investor, what um, understanding themselves as an investor, those decisions become a little easier. But if you've got money burning a hole in your pocket and you're thinking you need to do something with it straight away, that's uh, that's when when you can tend to get into a bit of trouble. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like the marshmallow test. You don't have to always eat the marshmallow straight away. Just uh, hold off and maybe you can get two marshmallows Hold later off on. and you'll get two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, um, thank you, Greg. That was highly informative. Uh, and if you guys enjoyed it, 
definitely leave a comment. We've, we read, read, read all the comments and we certainly enjoyed reading the, the positive comments uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah, let us know if you want us to cover anything else. Yeah, comments are great. So keep them coming, please. Yep. Okay, well, see you guys next week. Cheers, guys. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends, and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.